It's The Bill Murphy Show, featuring the best in the business and people from all walks of life. Available by subscription for free on iTunes and at BillMurphyShow.com. Brought to you by... An underwriting from Millennium Laser Eye Centers, a local partner and national institution worth the trip from anywhere to beautiful Fort Lauderdale, Florida for your LASIK procedure from Dr. Corey Lesnar and his staff. Visit them at HaveLASIK.com. Millennium Laser Eye Centers. You won't believe your eyes. Here's your host, Bill Murphy. And here's another new episode for you. It is season two, episode 19. As we get into this second version of the show... Apologize for not having so many, too many new episodes up lately. There's been a, a whole lot of other things going on, but uh, we did get some really nice reception to our encore presentations that we posted. Since those are like five or six years old, we figured it. We owed it to the new listeners to have you check out some of the great moments. The Mitch Ryder show, very well received. Dennis D. Young from Sticks, and also Steve Lukather from Toto. One of the some of the finest moments of the show. We really appreciate everybody liking and sharing. Today is a very, very special show for me. I couldn't wait to make it a Music Friday episode, so we're doing it on this Tuesday, October 18th. Stephen Wilson is joining me from across the pond somewhere in uh, England. Are you in London, Stephen? Uh, I live about 30 miles north of London. Most people would consider that to be London, so let's say yes. <laughs> okay, good enough. Stephen is coming to Fort Lauderdale uh, Sunday, November 20th to the Culture Room, a very intimate show. It's going to be an awesome room to see this band with this show, and we're going to showcase the uh, the album that he's in tour uh, supporting. Also, the, uh, for those of you listening from outside of the area, a few cities to keep track of. Dallas on the 15th of November, Atlanta on the 17th, Orlando the 18th, St. Petersburg 19th, and then here in Fort Lauderdale on Sunday the 20th. So that'll be the um, the fourth of four nights in a row. And not only that, it'll be the final show of that leg of the tour. Now, that always, that always turns out to be something special when you see somebody on the first or last night of the tour. So looking forward to some surprises. Four nights in a row. How, many, how often do you do that, Steve? And does that ever take a toll on you? Um, well, you know, if you'd asked me about a year ago, I would have said no. But last spring, or this spring, I should say, uh, for the first time ever in my career, I had to cancel a show. And I don't want to give people, you know, get people scared about anything like that likely to happen this time. But we did, um, for the very first time, we started off in Canada in January and it was like minus 20 degrees. It was ridiculously cold. And by the time we got down to New York, I was really suffering. Wow. And I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish that I'd given myself a little bit more time off between shows but I didn't and so I paid the price I ended up we we had two shows in Chicago and we ended up having to cancel one show but that is really the only time in my career uh, I've ever had to do anything like that so touch wood it's never going to happen again I have a, a few people that I need to thank for making this interview possible. First of all, one of your your bandmates John Wesley who we I have a connection to he's a Florida guy uh, yeah. based in Tampa for a long time, actually played at the Button South. I was the first disc jockey ever, the rock and roll DJ at, at the Button South back in the early 80s. And John, uh, a few years later, had his band Auto Drive playing there. John played recently at the Big Button South reunion, and that's where I hooked up with him, and he was able to make this happen. So thank you, John. Also, a big thanks going out to... Uh, Godfrey Townsend and my brother Steve, both from the Alan Parsons Live Project. So we have sort of a less than six degrees of separation here with these guys because you had Alan Parsons. You had the privilege of having him mix your uh, your Raven album. And um, so he's 
I have those guys to thank because I don't know if it wasn't for Godfrey and Steve, I don't know if I'd ever been uh, if uh, Porcupine Tree or Stephen Wilson would have been brought to my attention. And uh, I'm I'm a huge fan, so thanks to those guys. Cool. And Roy Avon, who you did a you did an interview on the Prague Report with my good friend Roy, and that was uh, that was good to hear you on that. So that was good to get uh, some reference from listening to that interview as well. So we have, uh, we have uh, a few connections out there in the music world. There you go. That's the way it works, isn't it, these days? Yeah. Absolutely. Godfrey <laughs> says if you're, if you're looking for, uh, uh, anytime you're looking for a new band and you want the guys that were in the Alan Parsons Live Project, he'd be happy to oblige. <laughs> wanted to pass that <laughs> along to him. That's great to know. They're great musicians, for sure. On this, and, and one other thing I wanted to let, uh, let out there is a couple of disclaimers before we get into the meat of this. And that is, first of all, you have a very vast uh, network of hardcore fans, both of Porcupine Tree and of your solo career. And I apologize to those folks in advance for being sort of a newcomer. I don't, I'm sure this isn't the first time you've heard this, but I'm a newcomer to Porcupine Tree after hearing Hand Cannot Erase. And I think that's probably a trend that's happening lately. People are being alerted to your career now with this record out there because it's uh, it's reaching some, uh, a degree of mass appeal. And um, so I apologize to those guys, but I assure them, and I know they're listening because I know they'll be Googling your name, finding this interview and listening, but I assure them that we're going to get into some um, content and, and questions and subject matter that they may not have heard from you before. So uh, uh, they can rest assured on that. And also... A little something about sound quality. Um, I've always prouded myself with this show to present the show in as high a quality as possible. Um, we always try to deliver the, the music at the highest bit rate possible, you know, taking into consideration the size of the, the files and all that. So if you're listening to this, you're going to hear some beautiful pieces of music in this show. And if you're listening through your laptop or your iPhone through a, <laughs> a microscopic speaker, we're going to send somebody over there to flick you in the forehead because this music deserves to be heard in the fullest fidelity possible. And that's where I... That's where I direct my first question to you. In this day and age, Stephen, you're such a you're a sound engineer. You're you're um, from what I can hear in your in your work, you pay close attention to detail to the quality of sound. Do you ever find yourself bothered by the fact that a majority of the listeners are listening through, you know, very limited dynamic range uh, uh, delivery services like phones and tablets and so, and so forth? Do you ever find yourself discouraged about that? Well, obviously, yes. I mean, you know, a lot of my music is is about audio excellence, sonic excellence. I love uh, the texture of beautifully produced sound. That's why I work with people like Alan Parsons, you know. But the other thing I would say about this is that it's always been this way. You know, it's this isn't a new thing. I mean, I my first record player was like this sort of tin box, you know, mono tin box. And I listened to records that I still love to this day for the first time I heard them coming out of this scratchy little speaker. I grew up also with cassettes, you know, and cassettes is hardly, you yeah, know, right. I can't, hardly audiophile quality. But I would record stuff off the radio and listen to it ad infinitum off these kind of gradually sort of decaying cassette. You could literally see the oxide shredding off them by the sure. time, you know, by the time I'd listened them a hundred times so i don't think this is anything particularly new that the fact of the matter is that convenience and this doesn't only apply to music by the way this is this is a kind of human trait isn't it convenience tends to win out 
over quality of experience and that applies to movies it applies right. to music it applies to life in general you know that's why most people are happy to eat junk food it's easy it you know it's easy to come by it's cheap but of course you can go and have a, a wonderfully cooked fresh meal in a wonderful restaurant it's going to cost you a bit more the experience is going to be a much higher level but most people you know they're they're not you know they're not inclined to do that so i think my philosophy is always that I make the music for the people that care right. about audio quality. And I aim, you know, for a sonic experience that will appeal to the people that do care. Now, whether that's surround sound or high resolution audio or just listening to a well-mastered CD on a well-set-up hi-fi system, that's who I'm thinking about when I make these records. But at the same time, I have to trust to the fact, hopefully, that my songs and my material are good enough that they're still going to sound good coming out, as you say, in MP3 form out of a phone or when somebody's listening to them streaming or when they're on a bus or in the gym. And I think good songs are good songs, ultimately, and they can kind of transcend, you know, the, the kind of medium, as it were. But certainly I aim high, you know, and, I, and that's been important to me since I fell in love with music as a, you know, as a kid. I was listening to these extraordinarily beautifully produced records whether it was dark side of the moon or you know those old donna summer bg's disco records which my mum used to love and they sat you know sonically they're beautifully produced or you know elton john records or right. you know the trevor horn records from the 80s these fabulous cinematic pop records those are the records that have always kind of fired my imagination and it's this so the idea of you know taking the listener on some kind of sonic journey that's that's kind of what got me hooked in the first place on music so you're hoping people are listening with headphones or on a big system but you know whatever or surround sound or right. off off blu-ray at high resolution i'm yes i think that's the best way to say it. i'm hoping right but i also acknowledge that the majority of people will will never have that quality of experience but the music hopefully will will still you know still have something that appeals anyway Okay, now at the risk of sounding a little too serious, because this is a, a subject that I get into with a lot of my international artists out there, we kind of make comparisons. This may have more to do, this may be a geographical kind of dilemma thing that I'm talking about. I was talking to a, a, an actual Grammy Award winning friend of mine uh, when I was first immersed in Hand Cannot Erase and, and the splendor and the beauty of the whole thing. I was describing it to him and played a couple of tracks to him for him. And being a radio guy for so many years and on mainstream rock radio for decades and understanding limited playlists and genres and all that, it made me wonder... I was very grateful for the fact that you pr created a record like Hand Cannot Erase, but at the same time, I wondered why. And I and 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 I I hope you don't misunderstand me. I mean, I'm here. I'm trying to understand where the market is. And again, I, this may be a United States thing. The the there's not the radio outlets that there were 30 years ago that would open themselves to progressive experimental album cuts, if you will, long tracks. Those genres don't exist. We've been sort of pigeonholed into just two or three pop genres here, and the outlets aren't really there like they used to be. So one would wonder, a musician of your quality and your abilities and Obviously, this is, you know, this is the core of your of your music sort of feeling. But, 
you know, you have to wonder, you take the time and spend the money to produce these records. Where, you know, where's the audience that's out there and how do they find you? And how, it is, it seems to me to be a risky thing to do, knowing that the, the radio outlets right. just don't exist. Mm -hmm. Okay. My, pretty much my whole career, and I've been doing this for more than 20 years now, pretty much my whole career, I've got used to the fact that my music is largely invisible when it comes to the mainstream. That's been true. I mean, the, the kind of era you're talking about, I think, is the sort of 60s and the 70s. Um, even by the time I started, which was right at the beginning of the 90s or the late 80s, I think that was largely true, that music that did not conform to the conventional pop format had a really rough ride when it came to getting any kind of mainstream exposure. Radio, press, TV, you know, just getting a video on MTV was, you know, right. uh, was was almost, you know, beyond, you know, completely out, out of the question, you know, so they would play something of my ilk. So I think I've kind of been aware of that since the beginning now. But you're quite right to point out that the music um, that kind of my, you know, that my records are very much in the tradition of are the classic albums um, that traditionally did get some support in the 70s. Um, and that those albums don't get their support anymore. Now, you asked me why. Okay, I, I appreciate, you know, it was kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek question. Why do I make records like this? Um, well, because that is my, you know, to put simply, and without wishing to sound pretentious, that is my vocation. It's not... It's not a choice I made. I didn't sit down with my careers advisor when I was 15 and say, OK, I'm going to be a musician. What kind of music should I make and give me the best possible career path? <laughs> it, you know, it right. wasn't that. I, I fell in love with the idea. You know, we kind of already touched on this. I fell in love with the idea of albums and albums and I, when I say albums I mean albums as opposed to just a bunch of three minute songs thrown together albums right. as a kind of musical continuum something which you might even say is analogous to sitting down and watching a movie or reading a book and I I always loved that idea that music could be analogous analogous to cinema or literature in the sense that you could take the listener on a journey you could tell a story across an album now that doesn't have to be a literal story it could be just a musical journey you know right. doesn't doesn't mean you are actually telling a story through the lyrics although in in the case of hand cannot erase that is the case but but i think all of my records have one thing in common which is they all have this feeling of journey and the feeling that they are telling you a story through the music and that is in many respects as you kind of point out that is a slightly outdated uh, mode of creative expression in, in this day and age but I don't see why it should be because cinema and literature is still as popular as it ever was mm -hmm. People are still quite happy, not even in the cinema. They're quite happy to sit down at home, put on a Blu-ray or a DVD and sit there and watch a story being told for an hour and a half or two hours, hopefully without checking their phone and without, you know, checking their email. And I don't see why it shouldn't still be possible for them to do that with a pop record or a, or a rock record now. Um so I guess I am, I consider myself to be part of a minority that's kind of preaching that particular message. But I tell you what, I think it's a growing minority. I, I do see uh, the pendulum is swinging a little bit back 
in the other direction now because I think there increasingly are people that are disenchanted with the banality of a lot of mainstream pop music mm -hmm. and I'm talking about young kids not not old guys like you and me right. uh, but I'm talking about young kids now you look at the resurgence in vinyl sales for example that's because of kids that's not because of old people who have a nostalgic attachment to it it's because young kids are getting into vinyl it's becoming almost hip to buy vinyl that's a great sign because that tells me that people are getting back into the idea of the album as a musical continuum, as a storytelling device. Right. And, on, and so, on, I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt you, but on that note, absolutely. I mean, the Hand Cannot Erase, as a perfect example, has an absolutely gorgeous album cover. And that's another thing that's been right. lost in this process. We get MP3s, right. we download, we don't see artwork, and you go, wow, I haven't, yes. I haven't seen a cover of Hand Cannot Erase that's bigger than, you know, a playing card. So, yet... You know, I, I wish I could see like a full screen image of it or, or get the artwork when I get it. So that's another thing that's kind of been lost. What you said here has kind of, I had capsulized that in, in these notes I made that I was going to mention later, that I was going to mention that these songs deserve and sort of call for undivided attentive listening. They're like, and these were the words I wrote in my notes, they're like sonic short films that paint their own pictures as they go mm. along. So that mm. kind of, you, you touched exactly on what I was going to say later. But the artwork's another thing that's gotten lost in the shuffle. Yeah, it has. I, you know, I think, again, if you look at, I'm very fond of this, as you can imagine, as you can tell already, I'm very fond of you know, making analogies between the world of cinema and literature and, right. and other art forms. Now, if you said to somebody, for example, you are never going to ever see a painting for real anymore. You're never going to stand in a gallery. You're never going to see the light reflecting off the canvas, the context of the painting in the gallery, the, you know, just the texture of the, of the surface, all of those things that are beautiful about a beautiful painting. You're never going to see any of that ever again. You're simply going to have a JPEG on your phone. And that is how you're going to you know, kind of um, engage with, say, the Mona Lisa or another beautiful piece of artwork. It's a ridiculous thing, you know. It's a very sad way to look at it. But in fact, this is exactly what is happening with music, that people are no longer able to engage with the physicality, the kind of, you know, that tactile relationship that I had growing up with music, whether it was buying vinyl or just even CDs. You know, you still had that with CDs. And I think that's such a shame. And I think in, in a sense, it almost is um, it, it's almost you know negating what it is to be a human being we are naturally defined by the things that we surround ourselves with you know if you go to someone's house you can tell so much about them without even meeting them just by seeing their record collection their CD collection their DVD collection whatever else they collect whatever else they've chosen to surround themselves with the way they've decorated their house right and I think a, a lot of that is disappearing as we all kind of disappear off into the, this cloud you know our whole life is kind of contained in this cloud and that I think is a, such a shame but again you know I do see a slight kind of you know uh, you know return as I think people are becoming disillusioned with that, thing, you know, that side of things. And again, vinyl is a g great indicator. Vinyl is coming back and vinyl is coming back because young kids are s feeling that they want to kind of wear their 
you know, I guess their musical passion uh, in public, you know, and, and, you know, actually have a kind of tangible sort of, um, you know, uh, manifestation of what they love and how they identify themselves. And that's what pop, great pop and rock music can do. It can kind of define your, can change your ideas about yourself and the world that you live in. And the artwork has got a lot to do with that, I think. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's interesting. Not only are the is vinyl coming back, but you see all these streaming services coming out. And as they get developed, they're striving for more what they're calling high fidelity now, hi-fi right. and high-definition. Yeah. De- and, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm thankful and grateful that, you know, we didn't, you know, a couple of generations hasn't gone by. In other words, I'm trying to, how do I explain this? I'm glad that enough... You know, not too much time has gone by to where several generations skipped it and everybody's just used to the way things are. The desire to bring the high quality back is probably something we have our generation to thank for because we're explaining to the younger generations, you know, music used to sound a lot better than it does on MP3s. And and so we've brought that to their attention. Perhaps we have, you know, there's enough of us left over from our generation. You're about a half a generation younger than I am, but... You know, that we're, you know, still, we still hunger for this. And that may be part of the reason why the desire to have the big quality come back. I think so. And, and uh, you know, I think generally speaking, as we, as we get older, we do look for more quality in our lives, don't we? You know, I, I believe that the real dark ages are kind of over now. You know, there was there was this period when music was all very compressed, MP, MP3s. And, you know, and of course, a lot of that was driven by the technology. The, the, you know, internet speeds were pretty slow. So you had to compress this audio to be able to download it or whatever, or stream it. And those limitations are gradually going. And, you know, the Internet is so fast now that streaming services can offer full resolution audio. That's definitely a step in the right direction. No, and I love I have title streaming service. And to go back and listen to yeah. some of the records that I had in the early 70s again and remastered and normalized to a level that it that it that it plays along with all the other songs in my playlist is just a fascinating thing. And it's really I'm really yeah. grateful that that is uh, that dynamic is still there. Things are get, things are getting better for sure. Yeah. Yeah, boy, we spent a long time on that subject. And I guess we, we, we just share a lot of passion about that stuff, um, about that part of this whole thing. So I want to start getting into the to the music here. Um, I want to play a piece of music that, that I'm going to just share with you how this was brought upon. My, again, I, I told you that my brother turned me on to it. He, he used the, the words, this album is changing my life. You, and the and he never does this. He'll text me and say, you immediately got to get a hold of Hand Cannot Erase and listen to it. It's amazing. It's changing my life. And he does it so rarely that I had to do it. It was a, an wow. alerting okay. message. And I had had some, uh, and so I started listening to the record and I said, oh, Stephen Wilson. I, I was a couple of tracks into it. And I, who is this guy again? It sounds familiar. And then I Googled and I found Porcupine Tree. And I realized that there's been friends of mine several years ago telling me we were sharing music stories and they knew my music taste and said, you got to check out Porcupine Tree. It's a great band. They're awesome. And, you know, unfortunately, I I confess that I never got around to doing that. So when I saw it and made the connection, I immediately went back to listen to as much of the catalog as I could. But I got stuck on track three when Perfect Life came on the first time I heard it. It brought me in and I felt I, I, what is probably every emotion that you felt when you created the song. And 
to be honest with you, I never even listened to any other tracks on the record for another day and a half because I was stuck on Perfect Life and listened to it over and over and over again, knowing that I had four or five more tracks to listen to and I had that to look forward mm -hmm. to. So this became a very close, intimate uh, piece of music for me. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Of course, I should have prefaced this by kind of introducing everybody to the story that the album is based on. This Joyce Vincent uh, story that was um, going around England for a while that yeah, I was wondering if this was part of the the facts of the Joyce Vincent story or was this an embellishment that you created to add to the story? Yeah, the latter, really. I mean, the Joyce, Joyce Carol Vincent, just just to give your listeners a very brief, you know, sort of explanation. Joyce Carol Vincent was a, uh, a lady that was found dead in her apartment in London and her body had been there undiscovered for more than two years. And that that was a new story that was going around about 10 years ago, which is unbelievable and shocking and all Absolutely of those things. Absolutely unbelievable. But what made it even more shocking and I guess kind of, you know, ramped up the, the, the sort of pathos is that she wasn't as I think most people would assume a lonely little old lady she was a young attractive popular woman you know a reasonably young woman she was in her late 30s and that made the story even more I guess incomprehensible and I began to try and find out a little bit more about her anyway to cut a long story short I, I just basically took the circumstances of her of her passing as the basis for my character. Basically, my, my album is about a young woman that comes to live in the heart of a major city, which, of course, in my mind is London, but could be any, you know, could be any major city, and gradually begins this process of erasing herself, disappearing from view. And how does someone arrive at that point where... They've been through their whole life connected with all these different people, interface and engage with all these other human beings, but is able to so completely disappear whilst living in the heart of a city surrounded by hundreds of thousands of other people. How can that possibly happen? And for me, it's a very, very 21st century story. Because I think anyone, if, even if they just think about that for a few moments, can actually come to the same conclusion, and it is this, that actually, yes... It's quite easy to imagine how that can happen in this world of, you know, this digital world that we live in, in this world of paranoia, of terrorism, of paedophiles, of the Internet, of social networking, of fear and, you know, loneliness and all of those things that we're kind of surrounded by in the 21st century. It's actually quite easy ultimately to understand how this could happen, shocking and tragic though it is. So I wanted to write an album from the point of view of this character, who is a fictional character, but the circumstances are, I guess, based on, on the circumstances of Joyce Carol Vincent's kind of passing. But now, to come back to your song, the song Perfect Life, which you mentioned, this is a song about my character's childhood, and it's a, it's a song essentially about nostalgia, and nostalgia for me is a fascinating human impulse. And if you think about it, it's a very unique human impulse because nostalgia is, by definition, remembering something with incredible fondness and incredible kind of love, but at the same time acknowledging to yourself that that moment has gone forever. That, you know, that in a nutshell is nostalgia. Now, that's a very peculiar thing because you're remembering something with a lot of joy and happiness. But at the same time, there is this kind of tinge of regret 
and melancholia associated with the fact the moment has gone. That makes nostalgia for me a really interesting and unique kind of human human emotion. And I write, I try to tap into that in a lot of my songs. And Perfect Life is one of those songs. It's a song looking back at a perfectly crystallized moment of happiness from, in this case, from, from teenage, from teenage years, and kind of acknowledge, acknowledging to yourself or the character acknowledging to herself that that moment has gone forever and how that kind of affects her. sister for six months. She arrived one February morning, pale and shell-shocked, from past lives I could not imagine. She was three years older than me, but in no time we became friends. We'd listen to her mixtapes, Ted can dance. She introduced me to her favourite books, gave me clothes, and my first cigarette. Sometimes we would head down to Blackbird's Moor to watch the barges on Grand Union in the twilight. She said, water has no memory. Everything about our lives was perfect. It was only us. We were inseparable. But gradually, she passed into another distant part of my memory. Until I could no longer remember her face, her voice. We. Mm-hmm. 
to let the whole thing play out. I can't. I can't even get myself to talk over the end of that. The uh, perfect life from hand cannot erase. Steve Wilson, Stephen Wilson, on the show today with me, and I'm just so honored to have you on there. The feeling and the mood of that song. It's just. It's not wearing off. It still has the same effect to me to this day. Now, there's. I'm guessing that you're at least somewhat familiar, and uh, have you know dabbled in. Meditation. I find if, I find that that song is sort of a meditation in itself. It has this sort of relaxed, focused awareness. It's it's hard not to block everything out and fixate on it. The to I find myself just completely drawn into the two chords that are over the spoken part at the beginning, which is beautiful, mm-hmm. by the way. But then it expands. Two more chords are added in there, and then the good old major seventh chord comes in there and pulls you mm. and pulls the listener into a new place that just just the the emotion is elevated. It's trance like, sort of like a layered repetition and reinforcement. It, it, I don't know. Was that the was that the idea? Was there a sort of meditation kind of feel when you were creating that? Well, uh, I mean, you're, I guess you're kind of, uh, in a way, you're tr- you're analysing something which I guess was quite instinctive for me. I mean, I don't necessarily think in ter- in those kind of terms when I'm creating music. Let's just say this: that I wrote the story, the the text that the the young lady reads. I wrote the story, and everything else followed very naturally from that, because the mood obviously was, uh, you know, very very important. C- striking exactly the right mood was very important to bring out that kind of pathos and and sense of nostalgia and regret and loss that is kind of implicit in in the words that the character speaks and you know the actual sung lyrics couldn't be more simple you know right uh and but again there's the slight sense of um you know irony in the lyrics the idea of you know living a perfect life of course there's there's no such thing you know as a perfect life but there are moments i think in life when you know when we can feel that things will never get any better than this moment and again you know again that kind of implicit acknowledgement to yourself that this moment will have to end at some point and i think that's you know that again that's part of the human condition isn't it that these in actual fact when we look back at our life it is a series of crystallized moments of incredible joy and happiness and crystallized moments of you know can be the opposite too of sadness and depression and loneliness most of our lives kind of potter along in this kind of you know fairly balanced even way but it's these moments these crystallized moments that i think a lot of what artists are trying to do and i don't just mean musicians i think painters filmmakers and writers they're trying we're all trying to capture these moments when we really feel and we're trying to make the person that kind of experiences these works of art again kind of feel those things too it's almost like a drug kicking into those drugs again you know and it's not only it's not only the positive things you know i think we all need to feel sad sometimes and we we kind of use music and we use art sometimes to get that kick too you know you know i read a quote years and years ago of david gilmore's who said Uh, And I'm paraphrasing it, but the idea was he said there's a certain joy in melancholy. Absolutely. And I I think that's sort of the same feeling you get from from some of these. You can't help but be sad. I literally have been brought to tears by that song in the right moment. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed right. the tears right. and I felt grateful that it was a- that I was able to have that effect on me 
from a piece of music. It's a, it's a very strange thing, isn't it? I mean, I, I kind of, I talk to the audience sometimes on stage and I make the joke that, you know, when I was growing up, sad music made me happy and it was always the really happy music that made me miserable <laughs> because because I would I would hear this sort of, you know, like uh, very kind of contrived happy party music and it would make me so miserable and I don't know why, you know, the, the bands, the kind of bands I love when I was a kid, bands like Joy Division, you right. know, and The Cure and all these kind of goth bands and, you know, and then going back to the 70s again, you know, bands like Pink Floyd, who predominantly wrote about very melancholic things. But it made me so happy. Right. And I think there is something, I think it's something to do with with that kind of sense of catharsism that you get from hearing something which makes you understand that you're not alone in feeling these things, that you're not the only person on earth to understand sadness, melancholia, loneliness, depression, regret, what it's like to break up with a girlfriend, all of these things. These are universal things. And I think that's one of the great things about art is they make you understand that you are not alone in feeling those things. It, it, it is such a relief to know that that, that is a more more of a universal idea than I even I even realized. Now you said something about the lyrics; they couldn't be any simpler. And I'm going to take that a step further and and share with you that I I feel like even the chords, the the arrangement of the song, it really couldn't be much simpler. And if mm. it was just you sitting at a piano playing that song, it would be. I, it wouldn't have, I mean, it, it's a beautiful, catchy chorus, and it's fantastic to hear it repeated over and over again, but so much of the emotion is in the arrangement. Now, being yes. a sound engineer myself and sharing this uh, passion for it like, like with you, I mean, not nearly at the level that you do, but I appreciate the dynamic range, and when you hear the first couple of times that that chorus passes by you f- a couple of th- then the drums kick in now you feel like the whole soundscape has been filled and just when you think it's been filled you find out that there's room for more and s- another layer comes in i mm. found myself astounded that that there was actually room for more things to come in and that thing that song grew and it's funny because i was dubbing it today and i looked at the sound wave of it and i saw that i was like oh wow no wonder is that beginning the first two minutes of that song is at such a lower level than you even realize, but it's still, it still has that impact. The dynamic range is fascinating. The room that you left in there to have the song grow to that level, that's really what the emotion is. It's not the lyrics and, as, and the chords as much as it is the arrangement and the uh, production. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways it's 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 ironic in a way that people think of me as a musician associated with with progressive rock. I mean, I, I personally I don't describe myself as that, but most people, and I understand why. I'm not I'm not I'm not sort of saying I don't understand why. I do. Most people consider me to, to be someone who makes progressive rock music, but for me, I actually strive in many ways for simplicity. You know, I strive for the simplicity of you know, Blackbird by the Beatles, you know, or, or, you know, a great song like Life on Mars by David Bowie, three and a half minute perfection pop songs. But actually those are incredibly hard to write. They are the most difficult to, to kind of have simplicity uh, in, in, you know, in a pop song is a very, very, and still make it very effective and very emotional is an incredibly hard thing to do. And I think Perfect Life 
is an example of where I may I may have kind of pulled it off uh, in my own way. It it is very simple. The, everything is about the sentiment of the song, and as I think you point out, the layering um, and the texture of the music and the way it kind of builds. And I, I love that, you know. And again, most people consider. We you mentioned David Gilmour already. I think Pink Floyd is a great example. They're considered in many ways to be the you know the most successful the most famous progressive rock band of all and yet their music is incredibly simple when you compare it to most of the other so-called progressive rock bands mm -hmm. and i think that's why they have prevailed and become the most successful and their music has become the most timeless of all because actually it's the most simple it's all about the texture the sound the emotion and the atmosphere and the story and and and, and the storytelling you yeah. know it's um it's it's as if you're reading my notes because you actually answered all of the questions that were in the next section of my notes I'm good was, at doing that sorry <laughs> this is going to be I was going to talk about the state of progressive rock these days and how it has evolved and is the genre accurately described these days I think after you know in retrospect I think about it I don't think it ever occurred to me that the term progressive rock may be, it may have been intended to really literally describe the music. It progresses. It starts in one place, it builds, mm -hmm. and it goes to another place and actually builds up, sort of like Perfect Life does. So in that sense, Perfect Life is a progressive piece of music because it starts in one right. place and builds to this giant right. crescendo. In the true sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, the answer to your question, the state of progressive rock, the, the, there's, a, there's a very facetious answer to that question, which is who cares? Okay. Because, because we shouldn't really be thinking of music in that kind of generic way anyway. I, don't, I mean, I'm always suspicious. When, I mean, I do get, sometimes I get kids sort of handing me their demos and they want to me to listen to their music. And sometimes they say to me, um, oh, can you listen to my, you know, listen to my band, we're a progressive rock band. And immediately I'm not interested. Right. Because to me, if you can kind of describe your music in such a simple way, it's probably not going to be very interesting to mm -hmm. me. So say, I, I don't wish to pick on just progressive rock. They might hand it to me and say, oh, it's, it's metal or it's, you know, it's hip hop or whatever. It's what I love is when people give me their demo and I say, what kind of music do you play? And they say, well, I can't really describe it. Great. Okay. Yeah. That sounds interesting to me. And it really shouldn't matter. But I think, you know, particularly we find ourselves now in the 21st century, we're living through the era of streaming. And I think a lot of those categorization or classifications are not really they don't really matter anymore right because a lot of that you know there used to be this thing where um you know um kids used to find out about, about music through you know we talked about this already about right through radio about reading magazines and video and now they just find it directly through the internet so i don't think it really is relevant anymore um i think the simple answer is there's you know what is the state of progressive rock well the simple answer is there's a lot of terrible music made in the name of progressive rock as there always has been yeah. and there are some great records made in the name of progressive rock as there always has been mm -hmm. uh, you know i think bands like radiohead are, are kind of in some ways very much in the tr tradition of you know they're almost like an equivalent of, of what floyd were in the 70s radiohead are in the 21st century um, there are some artists that are working in, in you know more in the kind of electronic side almost hip-hop and 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 coming from sort of dance music DJ culture that I think are very progressive in the way they go about making music so 
I think this kind of idea of classifying things in a very narrow way is actually quite destructive, and I kind of try to to avoid that. At the same time, acknowledging that most people do consider me to be part of that that movement. Music is music. Exactly. You know, I think the greatest artists really in history are the ones that you can't classify, whether it's the Beatles or Frank Zappa or Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin. It's kind of hard because they almost transcend generic classification. They simply become... Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, Pink Floyd and, and Frank Zappa. And we talk about, you know, people being very Zappa influenced or very Floyd influenced. And I think that, you know, that happened in cinema that, you know, people talk about movies as being very Hitchcockian or very David Lynchian. They talk about, you know, uh, painters being and I think that's that's when you know you've really done something special is people talk almost talk about your music as having its own, you know, its own kind of generic classification. I read in a couple of, you know, and I, and I, I take everything I read in Wikipedia with a grain of salt, but I did read something in there that I get the idea that you, I don't know if bothered's the right word, but does it, uh, you are to a degree kind of insulted by the comparisons to Pink Floyd? You sort of try to shy away from that? No, absolutely not. I'm certainly not insulted. My God, it's it's incredibly flattering. But I think just coming back to my last, you know, my last point, ultimately, I would love to be seen as someone that created their own musical world and, and musical genre and their own unique sound. And I like to think that I have done that by now. You know, I've been making records for 20 years. Some of my early records, for sure, wore their influences on, on, on their sleeve. And, and, that's true, I think, of most, you know, most musicians. It takes time for you to work through your influences. Pink Floyd were a very important band to me when I was a kid. And um, partly, I think, because um, I love the fact that the Pink Floyd were a band that in a way I could kind of understand what they were doing. You know, I, I could listen to Frank Zappa and King Crimson. I didn't really get what I was impressed by, it, but I didn't, I couldn't really understand, couldn't get my head around how could I possibly make music like that. But I could listen to Pink Floyd. I could say, yeah, I can see what they're doing. You know, the playing's quite simple. The compositions have a kind of logic to them. And I think I began in a way by emulating a lot of that. As kids do, you know, when they start making music. You can't help but, it, but right. You can't help it. You know, for me, Pink Floyd are definitely one of the three greatest groups of all time. Um, I'm certainly not insulted by the comparison. And I can certainly see how, you know, we talked about this idea of music as a kind of storytelling device. I think they were the kings sure. of that. Absolutely. They kind of started all that, you know, uh, them and I think Pete Townsend, you know, you, you look at those early Pete Townsend rock operas like Tommy and Quadrophenia. Those guys really set, the t you know, they created the template for storytelling through pop and rock music. So in a way, anyone that does that is going to be nodding in a way to, you know, kind of doffing their hat to that those kind of artists. Right. But. As I say, ultimately, I like to think that I will transcend my influences and, and create something that will stand the test of time as just a, a Stephen Wilson sound, if you like. I'm going to get into more of the, what the influence is that I can hear on the album in, in, in this next piece of music that I'm going to okay. play. But first, I have one more question to ask. Before I get into this next song, I've, I was curious about this as I was getting ready to do this interview. I, would, I was going to ask you, what title, if you had to, would you put first next to your name or you're a guitarist you're a singer you're an engineer you're a bass player for that matter if you had to is there uh, one of those things in particular that you enjoy the most and what would you primarily call yourself 
That's a really good question. You know what? Um, I, if I could slightly re-engineer your question, because the answer would be, if you ask me, what do I do with my life? I would say, I make records. Okay. So that's that's slightly paraphrasing your question. By but all of those means, right? Yeah. What what I do? What I do? So I produce. I play guitar. I engineer. I mix. I play keyboards. I sing. I write songs. I make records. So I'm a record maker. You know, uh, it, it, there isn't really such an expression as a record maker. But so that's why I'm paraphrasing you slightly. But the question was: If you had to, if, if I had, you had to pick one, what would it be? Uh, well, I can tell you, I can tell you what I like doing the most. Uh, I, I like production and, and kind of mixing. I love, I love being in the studio and painting with sound. And it doesn't matter if it's my record I'm working on right. or someone else's record. In, in many ways, it's easier, more fun for me if someone else has written the songs. Then I can just come and suggest things and come up with sonic ideas and, I love doing that. And actually, to be fair, that's kind of what I fell in love with at the very beginning. You know, I fell in love with the idea of making records, being a producer, using my imagination to paint with sound and take the listener on these incredible, you know, kind of journeys. And I would guess specifically the activity that once the record is completely tracked and everything is where it's supposed to be, the actual mixing, the mix down, the creating I the, do love the process mixing. of getting that to, yeah. that to its final destination. I, I do love that. And in fact, it's one of the reasons I've got involved in remixing so many other, you know, whether it's classic albums or, or new records for other artists, because I... I guess I do have some talent for that, and I love to do that. Oh, that's fantastic. I would like to say that I have some talent with that, too. I, I would say that's the part I enjoy the most as, as well. Um, I haven't had quite the, the, the delicious treats to mix that you have over the years, but... All right, here we go. We're going to get into another piece of music. It's Stephen Wilson. Hand Cannot Erase is the album he's out promoting, his, but his uh, discography goes way, way back. Porcupine Tree stuff. I mean, I, I got myself into the uh, the Fear of a Blank Planet album, too, and I'm already immersed into that. It's, it's really good stuff. But we're focusing on Hand Cannot Erase. Now, I'm going to play a very epic. Now, epic is a word that has been overused lately, but it has to be used as describing this song. There's a track called Home Invasion and Regret Number Nine. They, they mm. melt together into this 11-minute piece of music that just goes in many, many different directions. And I really want to get into detail about it after it. After the listener has heard some of these segments, I want to touch on a few different parts of it and really get into the nuts and bolts, uh, conceptual and lyric-wise, how does this song fit into the story? It's a song, this is, the, this is the kind of technology song on the record. So this is the song about how, you know, um, you know we can essentially create uh, uh, an illusion, illusion of a life uh, online. And, you know, the, for me, the kind of pivotal line on this, on this record, the verses is kind of a series of uh, each, each, each line on the verse starts with download. So you can download whatever you want. You download a gun, download a life, download religion, download sex. And the, the last line in the, in the last verse is download the life you wish you had. And I think so that kind of that really kind of sums up what this song is about, that there are people out there who are creating this whole kind of fantasy of a life through social networking that doesn't really exist.
Wow. All I can say is wow. When I hear it, it's home invasion, regret number nine. Um, I guess you can decide for yourself where home invasion ends and regret number nine <laughs> begins in that. But I, I, obviously the lyric part is where uh, I guess regret number nine kicks in. Am I getting that right? Uh, no, <laughs> regret nine is the is basically where the 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 keyboard solo begins, the Moog solo. So it's a completely instrumental piece. So, like I said, you can just pick your own part. <laughs> yeah, you can make it up. It's, it's not important to you. What I'm about to say about this piece of music is either going to really connect with you um, where you were when you created the song, or I'm just going to sound foolish with my own random interpretation of this. So, at, okay, at, at that risk, here we go. When those two chords come in at the very end after Guthrie Govan has just played one of the most amazing guitar solos I've personally ever heard, and I'm a big guitar solo fan, there's this little section where it drops out, you hear ambient uh, kids playing in the background, and then the G and the A uh, come in. You know, those two chords are simple enough on their own, and if they were starting a new song out of uh, cold, out of nowhere... It would have one particular sort of feel and would just kind of be, oh, that's a nice intro. But where they fall there after what you've just been through for the prior nine minutes or 10 minutes, and especially that solo with all the different chords that that solo went on, the journey that you've just been on, those two chords are literally goosebump inducing for me. And I feel like they act in a way to sort of release you from this tension that you've been on from listening to this journey that you've been on for the for the prior few minutes am i connecting at all with what you were going absolutely for? no 100% i mean that's this music is all about tension and release it's all about dynamics it's all about that sense of journey you know one of the things I, this this is interesting i think because it goes back to trying to define what I guess some people think of as quote-unquote progressive rock and I think one of the things that is if I can identify one of the things that is a hallmark of progressive rock is that it does unlike most other forms of music it does take you on let's use this cliche but it's kind of true an emotional roller coaster most if you listen to a song, a hip-hop song or a pop song or a metal song, it has it usually has one emotion that you're expected to feel. And that might be joy, anger, whatever it is. It kind of enca it's encapsulated throughout the whole song. There's something about the notion of what is progressive rock. And this is a game where it has a lot of very strong analogy with cinema and literature, is that you can shift emotions almost like you're going through a series of scenes in a in a in a script in a movie or chapters in a book that one moment the characters are feeling incredibly happy and uh, you know and they're in a new relationship and then the next minute the next scene the relationship's broken down there's loneliness and sadness and regret and you can do that in music and when you do do it in music you're usually either working in the classical music form or you're working in the so-called progressive rock form. It does seem to be something very specific to what people think of as, as progressive rock. And that is certainly a hallmark of my music. I love those shifts. But to, for me, that comes pr very much from my love of cinema, you know, uh, and the way that you can, you can create those shifts. Sometimes can, those shifts can be quite traumatic. Sometimes they can be very cathartic, as I think, as you kind of pointed out in Home Invasion, it's almost like you have this sense of cathartic release at the 
end of of her, of that song. Absolutely, and that and that that's a very that's a very cinematic thing for me. Well, it came across <laughs> loud and clear for me. It was it's just yeah. uh, an, an emotional tug that I don't think I'll ever lose. I'll hear that song a hundred times from now, and it'll still do the same thing. Now, on a lighter note, to go back earlier in the song, when you're doing the the, the pre-chorus that comes up after the verses that leads up into the into the very Pink Floyd-esque sounding chorus that's in there. I'm just wondering, I'm guessing, that there's an homage to Jimmy Page being played there. There's a riff that just sounds like a riff and a guitar sound, actually sonically, sounds very Jimmy Page. Were you thinking that at all, or am I just picking that up on my own? Oh, uh, I mean, I'm a massive, massive Jimmy Page, Led Zeppelin fan. Um, I don't know. You know, one of the one of the things I've found over the years is that there are influences that come through in the music that are conscious and there are influences that come through in the music that are kind of subliminal and subconscious but that doesn't mean they're not any any less there any more there or any less there um and sometimes people say things to me like that and i go oh yeah <laughs> i never thought about that but you're absolutely right um you do hear listen, what i'm saying I, there right absolutely no absolutely and listen i think there is a sense that Anybody that works with the guitar in a, in the kind of rock format these days, it's very hard sometimes not to occasionally reference either Jimmy Page, Tony Iommi, or Richie Blackmore, or David Gilmour, because those guys kind of wrote, you know, they wrote the the book on absolutely on how to how you know, particularly with riffs. I mean. Those guys with you know with guitar, it's hard to write a guitar riff that in a way doesn't nod to one of those guys, if right. not all of them. And certainly, I guess in in my own way, I'm most sort of inclined towards the kind of Jimmy Page way of playing. And well, there's two things about that specific section of that song that I think are Page-esque. And first of all, it's what you're playing. It's sort of the way yeah. he would do it, and it's yeah, yeah, the yeah. tone. It sound that tone stands out, yes. stands out, stands alone in that track it definitely yeah. sounds different than any of the other guitar it just makes me think let me let me dial in a, a page tone here for this part i just pictured you doing well, that when you were in this i probably did i'm always saying things like that i think you know i i think there's one thing about jimmy page that was unique which is that he was a rock and roll guitar player but he could funk oh yeah he had a real sense of funk and groove he was playing he, rhythm I, parts in solo sections that are just you know phenomenal so groovy and i love love that approach to playing there's a lot of groove in in uh, hopefully there's a lot of groove in the way i approach the guitar parts and i think a lot of that does come from from jimmy page for sure that yeah. specific part i'm talking about was you not guthrie correct that was me yes yeah yeah all right let's talk about guthrie govan because i just the guy is i'm, I'm just going to ask you this is guthrie govan the most in-demand guitarist on the planet today uh probably i couldn't keep hold of him that's for sure uh he, he's no longer with me unfortunately he's out there playing with uh hans zimmer now the the cinema oh uh, the, wow the central composer yeah uh, playing massive shows with Hans Zimmer as his as his uh, Guthrie is extraordinary. I, I would I would go as far as to, and I'm not the only one to say this. I would go as far as to say he's possibly the most naturally gifted guitar player that has ever lived. Um, I, I'm not saying that necessarily makes him the best guitar player, although he's definitely one of those two. But just if you sit with Guthrie and you just watch him play, the the gift he has is almost beyond understanding it's just unbelievable a lot of those solos he plays on my record 
their first takes. You know, I, it, it, do you want to talk about unbelievable? There's a video yeah. going around of the the last two minutes of Regret Nine that yeah, I watched, solo, yeah. and that's solo, and I watched it. And I was just blown away by it. First of all, you watch the expressions on his face, which are classic, and you just see the way he's playing. And then when it got done, the first time I watched it, I went, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Is that the actual take on the record? Yeah. Oh, and I yeah. went back to the record and I let, yeah. you guys cut that all live. That's yeah. even more unbelievable to me. And I've, I don't think to this, I don't think I've ever seen anything that impressive. Me neither. You know? Me neither. I've listen. I've worked with a lot of amazing guitar. I mean, I have another amazing guitar player in my band right now, David Kilminster, who's who's out with Roger Waters now in California. He's amazing. He's, he's amazing. He's also extraordinary. But even Dave will say, uh, Dave has said that he thinks Guthrie is the greatest guitar player that has ever lived. It's extraordinary. Guthrie played that solo completely improvised in one take. Come on. And yes, you're right. You look. You look at his facial expressions, and it's like he's taking a walk in the park. Yeah. It's like he's taking a walk in the park. It's unbelievable. And and yes, I think he probably is one of the most in-demand players. I wish I could have kept hold of him. But, you know, at the same time, I acknowledge to myself that Guthrie is too good to be playing, uh, you know... <laughs> backing as a well backing musician in inverted commas of course he was very featured in my band he was far from a backing musician but he's too he's too good to be playing you know uh, in as a session player in someone like me's band uh i can just imagine this guy you know from dawn till dusk just recording on uh, you know 15 albums a day just because everybody just wants him he could do it he he absolutely could do it but you know like a lot of very sensitive gifted musicians he is very choosy about what he does and uh, he you know like you say he could do anything and I'm very honoured that for, for a couple of years he decided he wanted to be in my band and wow uh, well, the evidence is th is there. Luckily, the evidence is there for for eternity. He's he's played on two records with me, and those solos uh, will always be there. You know. Well, perhaps that will happen again, Stephen. You've you've really gone above and beyond what I expected. We spend way more time than I even expected from you. I, I really appreciate this. Stephen Wilson and his band will be his extremely talented band. Will be at the Culture Room in Fort Lauderdale Sunday, November twentieth. Now it's a Sunday night. It's the last night of the leg of the tour. Now, was I right when I said that earlier? about uh you know do you guys have you guys have extra extra fun on the last nights of legs of tours don't you yeah i think so i mean you know what this is the first time i've ever done a a tour of florida you know it's it's three shows in florida is is quite it's quite a tough thing to take on you know it begs the same question that i asked before and that is really i mean yeah your, your album and your record your music you as an artist are, I would imagine, far more in demand over the rest of the world than you are in the state of Florida. I mean, to, for us to be honored with three stops in Florida is just something it, it else. Was, Again, yeah, I have to ask why. You know, it, well, I my I guess the the promoter decided. I mean, I've always done a show in Florida, you know, and, and it's always done very well. But I guess you know, I guess my promoter decided this time, let's have a go. You know, let's do let's do three markets in Florida. Uh, it, it's it's been a risk. It's been a gamble. It's looking okay. You know, the ticket sales are good. Um, there, of course, there's always people that won't travel. You well, know, be, the, the sales will be through the roof now that you've been on this show. You know? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. But you know they're they're small they're small clubs they're like six seven hundred clubs I would love to sell I would love to sell them all out you know and come back next time and and do bigger shows you know it it it's uh yeah it's it's been a it's been an experiment and a gamble but you know the Floridians can 
can uh, prove prove us all wrong and uh, you know turn up and make these great it's a great show I, I really hope people have come along we have a lot of fabulous kind of visual aspects to the show too it's, well you can count on me being there and I, I know that there's 20 or 30 or 40 of my closest friends that will be there as well and I, I and where's this opening as well where's this going to do uh, John Wesley's going to do an acoustic opening show for, for me yeah. that was uh, I was the next thing I was going to mention yeah. and again I have him to thank for setting this up for us and I did get to see him and it, it was it was remarkable in fact the whole thing that started it, it, I'll just close with this this story and then so we all got together to sort of reunite all this group of folks that hung out at the Button South a great rock club that was the Agora Ballroom back in the 80s blah 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 everybody but I moved to Dallas Texas for the last five six years of the Button South's existence and that's when John or Wes was there with Auto Drive so I wasn't familiar with him until I met him at the reunion a few weeks ago. So I'm backstage, I had just introduced him and I was hanging out with a friend of mine and he has this drummer with him, forgive me for not remembering his name, just phenomenal. And I'm hearing it through the backstage walls with this odd time signature. And I said to my friend, what? That's a really, really cool time signature going on there. What is that? And we're trying to count it and we're figuring it out. I got to go check this guy out. So I'm going and I'm watching and I'm just just sucked into the whole performance. And my friend comes up to me and he goes, he was a guitar player from Porcupine Tree. I go, get out of here. And that's all this kind of got connected to me in the last month or so with uh, being alerted to your record, meeting John, finding out the connection there. So I just feel like there's this whole uh, bunch of synchronicity going on with that I was it was in I was supposed to be turned on to this music because now with all the music I've listened to over the years, this is uh, right up there on my uh, top ten list of all time. Hand cannot erase is a masterpiece, and I'm uh, honored to have you on my show to share it with us. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for the support. And now you've discovered it, of course. You know that's. That, you know, it, I always say with people who discover the music later on, they kind of apologize to me. I said, I'm happy you've discovered it now. Better late than never. So that is a dynamic. That is something that's happening with people. They're discovering All you the after the fact. All the time. I mean, like I said, I've been doing this for 20 years now. It's not been easy. You know, it's been a labor of love. I've never wanted to compromise and I haven't compromised. But I think gradually, you know, hopefully quality always ultimately will out, you know, and the music gradually has reached people. A lot of it through word of mouth. And if you think about it, that's the best way. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to, to make fans is word of mouth because it's not because it's some hipster thing and it's not because you're being told by marketing men to like it. And that's important too. I look forward to seeing you at the show. I'm definitely going to come and meet you in person. I'm really looking forward Thanks to too. it. And again, everybody listening, the show is Sunday, November 20th at the Culture Room in Fort Lauderdale. Stephen Wilson, thank you so much for being on the show with me. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Subscribe to the Bill Murphy Show podcast for free at iTunes. You can post comments about today's show, listen to archived episodes, and like the show on Facebook by visiting BillMurphyShow.com. A presentation of Bill Murphy Productions.